The reading of God's Word comes from Proverbs chapter 14. We'll take up verses 6 through 10. Proverbs 14, verses 6 through 10. This is God's word. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. The heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon his word. Father, even now, uh, we would ask that you would guard us from folly, uh, that we uh, would be postured to grow in wisdom. Uh, the wisdom of your word is uh, we come before you, Lord, seeking that portion of meekness, uh, humility which is necessary uh, to receive the implanted word unto our salvation. Uh, Father, we uh, know that all riches of wisdom and knowledge have been opened in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, but we are so sluggish to seek them there, Lord. Um, and so we ask that you would um, strengthen our appetite uh, for your word, Lord, for the truth of your word, for the excellencies of your word. Uh, and that looking unto Christ our King as the one uh, who proclaims and teaches and instructs even now by the wonderful working of the Holy Spirit that you would build us up and that you would teach us the way we ought to go and that you would form us and fashion us uh, into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, unto the glory of your name. Now do these things even now, Father, as we give our hearts and our minds over uh, unto the reading and the proclamation of your word. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, you can turn in the Trinity Hymnal to page 973, or I believe on the white insert, you'll find questions 73 through 75 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, continuing our time through the Ten Commandments. We come now to the Eighth Commandment. Come now to the Eighth Commandment. I'll read Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. This is God's word. You shall not steal. Uh, thus ends the reading of God's word, and we'll take up uh, question 74 and question 75. Question 74 asks, what is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. And then question 75, what is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our 
neighbor's wealth or outward estate. I can remember one uh, vivid day in California. Um, we were living in California. Uh, Samantha and I uh, must have been out for a walk or out for um, some purpose or another. And uh, when we came back, we uh, found that our home had been broken into. Um, it was a new experience. I'd never had that happen to me before. Samantha had never had that happen to her before. Um, but I remember it being an incredibly and surprisingly uh, unsettling feeling. Um, walking around the house, seeing uh, that there were traces of someone um, rummaging through uh, our possessions, our belongings, someone who had no right to be there, um, and finding that um, miscellaneous items had been taken. Um, it was an experience which left us feeling rather violated. Uh, that is probably the best word for it. There was a sense of violation um, to it. Um, it was a, an experience which highlights that there's much more going on uh, in the commandment that God sets forth here uh, than simply uh, respect one another's things. Uh, now make no mistake, God is very interested in uh, having us uh, acknowledge that he gives us everything that we have. That's a plain commitment from Scripture. Um, if you read the literature in Reformed circles on the Eighth Commandment, you don't have to read too far to find a vindication of private property <laughs> as an ethical principle, and I think that that's right and good. It assumes that if God says you can't steal, then it assumes that something in a fundamental sense can be called yours and in a fundamental sense can be called mine, even though Scripture says everything belongs to God. He's still the one who gives gifts. He's the one who gives us our outward estates. And there's an encouragement even in that. That God isn't just interested in the soul, as certain common popular notions have. We pray for our daily bread. Christ instructs us that the Father knows that we have need of clothing and shelter and food. And in fact, he designed us to have these needs and thus he doesn't begrudge us supplying us these things. All of those truths undergird this, but there's more than that going on as that experience pressed upon my own heart so vividly. It's not just about making sure that my stuff stays my stuff and your stuff stays your stuff. Part of it is pressing upon our hearts that people are always more important than things. And to flip that, flip that fundamental creation order on its head, where things become more important than people, that I'm willing to displace you, disregard you just to get this or that, is a perversion of the created order. And we start to feel something of that in this commandment. And so as we've been doing, I'd like to enter into this meditation on the Eighth Commandment at the broadest level conceivable, and then we'll spend some weeks flushing out some of the particulars. 
that the Westminster Standards give us. So just two points tonight. First is that God forbids dishonest gain and God calls us to honest labor. Very simple. God forbids us from dishonest gain and God calls us to honest labor. We're going to enter into it this way from Ephesians chapter 4, which is very similar to the Eighth Commandment. In fact, it is a meditation or an application of the Eighth Commandment. Ephesians 4, chapter 28. There we read Paul write, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal. He forbids, God forbids dishonest gain. Now, if you're familiar with the letter to the Ephesians, you know that we're in the second part of Ephesians, and we're in this section of Ephesians where Paul is instructing Christians on the shape of the Christian life. He's saying, this is what the Christian life is going to look like. You used to live a certain way as non-Christians, dark, selfish, fountains of all sorts of ill. He says, not anymore. That was the old way. The new way has dawned. Now you're in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a new creation. And a new way of thinking and acting has opened up. But you're still in need of encouragement in that direction. Because it's not such a native way to you that you're just going to seek it left to yourself. So let me, let me encourage you in the shape of this life as you follow in faith looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Incidentally, that's what we mean by the third use of the law. If you're familiar with some of those distinctions about the use of the moral law of God, the third use of the moral law of God is that the lovely moral vision, the lovely way of righteousness that comes to us in these commandments is the rule or the direction or the pattern of the Christian life. That these things aren't just to be set aside as, oh, they were fulfilled for us in Christ. We don't have to think about that and go do as you please now until he gets back. No, salvation itself entails a component of actually being made at the fundamental level to look like this now by God's grace. And so this is what Paul enters into here. And he comes to verse 28 and he basically says, Hearken unto the Eighth Commandment. <laughs> he makes it more explicit by giving both what it forbids and what it commands. But what it forbids is no longer thieving. Let the thief no longer steal. If you read the Old Testament, you'll know that God has forbidden many forms of gain. He has forbidden many forms of gain. There are lots of ways to gain in this world. This is striking. There are lots of ways to gain in this world. Most of them are forbidden. There are lots of ways to gain for the Christian. Most of them are forbidden. Indeed, for all people, they're forbidden. But the Christian is particularly sensitive to the ways that God has said. It's not legitimate to gain in this way. We might be tempted to hear this commandment, thou shalt not steal, and think in a very narrow sense about theft. 
And certainly that narrow sense is included here, what we might call robbery, right? There is taking something by force or violence. Taking something that's not yours by force or violence. Leviticus 19.13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Those are both violent images. It's depriving your neighbor of something via force. But it's not just violence, it's also deceit. What we might call fraud, which is taking something by deceitful means. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. Leviticus 19.11. There's a way to deceive another person and thus deprive them of their goods. You could include under this heading all those strange warnings about having false weights and measurements. That you're not to have two different types of weights in your bag. All of that would have been a way to commit fraud, to take something dishonestly from another, whether money or a product. But Scripture also forbids exploiting others in difficult circumstances. This is also a type of theft. Whether that person is a stranger or a sojourner in the land of Israel, thus their entire life is a sort of difficult circumstance, or whether it's a fellow Israelite who has fallen upon hard times, whether a widow or an orphan or your brother who has fallen into poverty. Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who is within your land. You could also include under this scripture warning about the danger of withholding wages from the worker. A day laborer, a hired worker would have been one who was dependent upon what he made that very day. Thus, to deprive that poor brother or sojourner or stranger or widow, like the case of Ruth, to deprive that person of his daily wages is to steal from that person all of these have a sort of double heinousness to them of not just taking something from somebody else, but also seeing someone in need and viewing it as an opportunity for you to gain. Exodus twenty-two twenty-five: If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. This isn't forbidding the concept of loaning at interest as such, a sort of absolute prohibition on the concept of interest. Rather, it forbids seeking gain from someone's hardship, exploiting someone's difficult circumstances for your own benefit. This is what is repugnant unto God. So you can feel why theft is shameful. Do we still feel that? Calvin goes on and on about how the word thief, how the accusation of theft carries great shame for the one who's accused. I think we've generally become desensitized to shame. I we made this point before, those things aren't super clear to us. I don't know that we feel that anymore. Do you, does the thief 
conjure up a shameful image in our sort of modern consciousness. I'm not sure, but you can feel something of why it's so shameful, that it's a shameful way to behave. Children, if your brother or your sister is riding their bike and they fall and they're seriously hurt, what would be a good thing to do? Well, you would help them, right? You would run over to them and help them up. Or if it was really serious, maybe you would run to your mom and dad and say, my brother's hurt, my sister's hurt, they need help. There's something humane about helping one in need. It would be awful if you saw them fall, crying their bike next to them and think, now's my chance to take the bike. I've been waiting this whole time for something like this to happen. That bike is finally mine. And you ride off with your brother or your sister crying behind you. That would be shameful. That would be an awful way to act because it's your brother, it's your sister. It's one to whom you owe a love and a care. The Bible says we act shamefully whenever we treat things as more valuable than people. Whether we devalue people and fixate on things, this is shameful, it's base, it's perverse, it's flipping the world on its head. Think of how many absurdities are bound up in that frequent corruption. How many absurdities are bound up in that? It thinks that happiness can be had in things, right? At some level. Even though we know that's not the case, we've experienced that time and time and time again. You're willing to bike. This is what's going to do it for me. I'm taking it. Who cares about the one who's in need? It assumes that we have to go out and take things and that the Lord doesn't give us things freely. There's a certain vision of God that's entertained at the heart of theft, isn't there? That he's stingy, that he doesn't give good, that he's not going to care for us, that he's not going to provide for us, or he hasn't provided for us according to the standard that we think he ought to provide for us at. So there's a base notion of God there's an inversion of creation, and as we've already said, there's a despising of an image bearer as well, as that person becomes something to be disregarded, something to be ignored, something to be manipulated so that I come out on top, even if it means they get driven farther below Beloved, mark our corrupt hearts in this area. Mark how quick we are to study our own gain and how slow we are to study the gain of others. Mark how quick we are to protest our losses and how generally indifferent we are to the losses of others. Mark how quick we are to explain our losses away as sort of unavoidable turns of circumstances and how quick we are to see the losses of others as their just desserts. 
We're guilty of this, aren't we? I know that you are. (laughs) Because I am, beloved. I know my heart. I know our hearts. These are sinful variations of that relentlessly perverse theme of devotion to self above all else. That cult of self which preaches the gospel of my gain even if it means your loss. Isn't that the gospel of self? I gain. I don't care if you lose. Wait, are our hearts really capable of such darkness? Let's not kid ourselves, beloved. We live in a time of abundance. It's rather easy to be generous in a time of abundance. It would be easy to mistake true concern for others with a sort of contentedness with the pure abundance of resources that we have. Do you understand what I mean by that? What do you think your heart would do in a time of scarcity? It's easy right now to write a check when I've got so much. It's easy right now to give when I've got so much. It's not all that hard to content myself with the gain of others because, quite frankly, there's a lot. (laughs) But what if there was a little? What if a time of scarcity opened up? Perhaps then we'd see that this darkness of heart that I'm setting forth maybe isn't that foreign to us. Maybe it's been kept at bay, not true through true sanctification, but simply through God's kindness of giving a lot to a lot of people. <laughs> maybe if the chips were down, we would show that this darkness is closer at hand than we thought. Lord, keep us from that day of trouble, but let's earnestly grapple with that as a legitimate possibility. Right? Let's not kid ourselves. So we can mourn and confess our sinful tendencies. Confess the tendency to value things more than people. (laughs) And seeing our happiness bound up with stuff and thinking that we just need more stuff and then we'll be happy. Or even just our slowness in thinking about the welfare of others and how we might Use our abilities and gifts and resources to advance someone else and not just ourselves. Mark how contrary all of this is to the heart of Christ. If the thieving heart cries out, I must gain, you must lose, I will be rich even if you become poor, what does Christ say? I will make them rich, even if it means my unthinkable poverty. I will secure their gain, even if it means my unfathomable loss. Let the thief no longer steal. That's how you used to think. Not anymore. Because you belong to the king. The king who truly sets on display the father who gives and gives and gives and that not begrudgingly, beloved. 
Let the thief no longer steal. So now we contend with thieving hearts, contend with perverse thoughts that would invert the world, see things wrongly, see God wrongly. We seek that forgiveness that comes from Christ. And we seek that portion of grace which alone can bring us to see and to act rightly with reference to God and things and our neighbors. And it also leads us to see the goodness of honest labor (laughs) and making ourselves useful, not just for the self, but for others as well. Isn't that what Paul goes on to say? Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, working good with his own hands so that he may have something to share with others. Something different's underway, beloved. We're not looking for a quick way to get rich. <laughs> we know that there's no shortcut in life. We know that. We, I, well, now you know. I hope you, if you didn't know before, now you know. There is no shortcut. There's no pill to get the six-pack. There's no listening to French while you sleep and waking up like Pascal. <laughs> There's just working hard and making a little bit of progress. That's it. It's the same thing in sanctification, isn't it? It's the same thing with the Christian life. Ask Pastor King. He's been at it for a while. He's been working hard. How much progress have you made? I'll tell you. The Westminster Confession says very little progress in the grand scheme of things. It's not just Pastor King. Pastor King's... That was a bad way to go. I can see that now in retrospect. <laughs> Thought I was going to be able to pull it off. <laughs> the Westminster Confession of Faith, even those of us who make remarkable progress in the Christian life have really not even begun in the journey of transformation. There's a paradox there. We work hard, we labor hard, we fight the good fight, we make just a little bit of progress, but we trust, beloved. We trust the king, we trust our God that this is good, even if it doesn't always make sense to us. Paul says we're not looking for a quick fix. We understand that life is going to be full of work and not just work, hard work. That's what the word means here. The word isn't just work, the word is labor. It means work strenuously, intensely, It conjures up this idea of a sore body, sweating, exhausted, via work. The Bible calls us to hard work, beloved. And we trust that if God has called us to such a thing, that it's good. There's a blessing to be had in it. That's rather surprising. We've talked about this before, that most of our notions about the good life involve comfort, ease, a life of non-resistance, non-adversity. Scripture flips that on its head and says, what's good for you is difficulty. 
What's best for you in this world is hardship, beloved. Now, praise God, he oftentimes oscillates seasons of ease with seasons of difficulty such that it's not just one unbroken day in the furnace. But mark the counterintuitive wisdom of Scripture. He says, put off that pursuit of easy gain, because that's what theft is. He says, take up that counterintuitive goodness of hard work, of earnest struggle. And notice the faith that's involved in that. I mean, this very clearly recalls the garden, doesn't it? The word labor. The fact that we have to work hard to make so little gain reminds us that not all is as it should be. I don't know how often you make that connection. As you're working away at your lawful calling and it's hard and it's frustrating and it's difficult, very often I think our tendency is to complain about that difficulty. Scripture would posture us to see in the very reality of difficulty a reminder of sin, beloved, that the reason the world groans, the reason that thorns and thistles and sweat attends even bread and produce is because our Father sinned and we in Him. The frustration which so often leads to grumbling when the eyes of faith are in place. The hardship leads to humility. Posturing ourselves before this reality is saying, there's still fruit to be had. Things are this way because man has sinned, and yet God's goodness shines forth in that it isn't only thorns and thistles. He hasn't handed it over to utter futility, beloved that you still receive wages for your labor. For those of us who are closer to the land, still watch their work yield fruit from the land, even if they're hard. Mark God's goodness in that, such that even as he cursed the world, he didn't hand it over entirely. And in that is his goodness, beloved. And so there's reason even in our difficult labors to which he calls us to see the excellencies of our God, his goodness even in the face of sin, and the way that he redeems something as mundane as our honest daily work. And mark the manifold blessings that attend this labor. First, you have just the simple observation that hands which are busy in honest labor are kept from the sins of idleness. It's true, beloved. You will find yourself in the most trouble when you are bored. <laughs> Not having anything constructive or productive to do is one of the most dangerous places to be. Mm. So the Lord gives honest labor to do. To the blessing of being occupied with the strength of our hands, with our minds. Second, we're rendering something useful by our labors. A swept floor is a relative good. A checkout process smoothly transacted is a relative good. 
An oil change is a relative good. Safe and functioning computers, I'm told, is a relative good. <laughs> Hardworking and respectable children, a relative good. All of these things that we labor at, all of these things that we pour energy and effort into, they are relative blessings, beloved. Just because they're not eternal life doesn't mean that they're not relatively good. We see there the goodness of God, that there's all sorts of lawful endeavors to which we can put energy and time and thought and care, rendering advantage by honest labor. The labor itself, in contrast to the thief, contributes something. And therein we see God's goodness. But above all, what Paul draws attention to is that honest wages leave you with something to share. That's what he says, isn't it? Consider the thief's mindset. I must have, you must lose. The Christian mindset is, I'm working to have so that I can give, beloved. We see something uniquely Christian in this. God is pleased to use that honest labor to position us to give in a way that's closer to the way that Christ gives. For what Christ earned by a principle of justice, he gives according to a principle of grace, beloved. He earned eternal life. They were his wages, beloved. Your wages are death, beloved. And yet in Christ you are heirs of eternal life. What he earns according to a principle of justice, he distributes according to a principle of grace. And he invites us in to participate in this in a small way. What we earn via a simple principle of justice, honest labor, honest wages, then positions us to give. Not as a quid pro quo, Christians, but freely, generously, as a faint flicker of the abundant grace of our God, beloved. Giving to those who are in need, not because they can contribute something to me, but simply because it reflects the glory of our Father on display in the Lord Jesus Christ, who freely distributes what he has earned by right, beloved. This is a Christian approach to labor as the Apostle Paul sets it forth. It's remarkably refreshing, isn't it? There's something remarkably lovely about it. In a world obsessed with gaining, even if it means that others lose, this little community has burst onto the scene, which is starting to learn that it's better to be interested in the gain of others, even if it means losing ourselves. Because that's who our king is, beloved. May we be known as flickering something of his excellencies, even if it comes to us at real cost. Let's pray. Father, uh, you are so 
good and bountiful in all that you give and in all that you do, Lord. And we do acknowledge that we have thoughts that are far too low of you, far too high of ourselves, far too low of others, far too high of the things of this world. And so we pray that you would correct us in this spiritual sight, Father, that you would help us to put off the old and to put on the new, and to see the excellencies of Christ on display in this way and how uh, he changes, even just how we approach our daily labors, our desire to honestly work, Father, that we might uh, be positioned uh, to care, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. I bring these things to pass, Christ, for we ask in your name, amen. Mm -hmm.